Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for being here, as always. Much appreciate your time. Uh, Big news today. There was a victory for the Trump administration with regard to the travel the travel ban, um, the Supreme Court will make the final decision on it, but they lifted the most of the stay on the ban, which means that right now most of the court is of the mind that Trump on his travel ban was mostly right. Now, I should note that the three uh, dissents in this case uh, come from judges who believe that the, the ban did not go, or rather the... Uh, remove on the stay does not go far enough and that the whole thing should be allowed. Um, And I can get into the details of this with you in just a little bit. But uh, here's the the important takeaway is that we were told for months and months that what Trump was doing here with his temporary uh, limitation on non-U.S. citizen travelers to the United States for the purposes of national security uh, was not some unconstitutional creation of an American gulag or something. I mean, th- this wasn't the destruction of the nation that it was made to sound like by the media. You know, we're just steps away from internment camps for foreigners or something. That was just all media hyperventilating. I mean, you have liberal judges going along with Trump so far on this. Now, keep in mind, the, the way this works, right, is that the Trump executive order goes out. And remember, this is the second executive order now we're talking about, EO2. Uh, and the, well, two courts said that, no, you you can't do this for a whole bunch of reasons we've talked about here on the show in the past. And then the administration went back to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has said, look, we're going to deal with full arguments this fall on this issue and settle it once and for all. But in the meantime, most of what the administration wanted to do, they actually can do for now. Um, that means that they think that the administration was, as I said, mostly right on this. Which, by the way, should be noted, that means that the media acting as this was, acting as though this was some travesty, some horrible tragedy, they were either just wrong or dishonest. Maybe they're both. A combination of both. But that's an, that's an important news story. Again, I'll, I will go into some more details about that. I also want to talk to you about um, CNN having to change its uh, Russia, uh, its Russia coverage after they ran an almost entirely unsourced one anonymous source. They run a story on a Trump advisor that is uh, disparaging, and and I wonder if it could be legally actionable. Hence, why there was a bit of panic in the CNN uh, CNN corridors of power over this, and now they have new. Uh, rules in place for any and all coverage of Russia from CNN. 
but wait, I, I thought that I thought that there was no agenda, and I thought everything was fine, and they were just doing great journalism. Uh, I thought that all the snarky stuff I see from CNN reporters on Twitter about how they're just speaking truth to power, you know, they're part of the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness, and all that stuff, right? Right? I, oh, maybe not. Maybe not, it seems. There, there is, in fact, an agenda that is in place. Um, but before all that, I, I wanted to spend some time with you today on the, uh, the latest on the health care bill, because I think that uh, this is the single most important issue uh, on the docket right now uh, in the news cycle, and, and this is the most important issue for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, it's because, as I've said to you before on this program, this affects you, it affects me. Uh, when I'm backstage with people before I go, I mean, I did Fox earlier today and I was talking to uh, other people that opine for a living. Uh, everyone wants to talk about this because they all have opinions. They all have interactions with the healthcare system. They deal with the healthcare market and it's deeply personal and it's it's scary. Um, and when you're on the wrong side of this thing and, you know, you get a bill that you're like, I, I just can't pay this. I, I thought I had insurance. I don't have the money for this. What What is this all about? Why am I insured if I'm not really insured? You know, How can I be insured if that means that I can still lose all my money when I have a legitimate health need when I get sick? Um, or, or just the, the crushing burden of paying for your health care under the current system, whether under an Obamacare plan or some other uh, plan that's out there. Everyone has opinions on this. It matters to you. It's unavoidable. And you have... I think two aspects of the discussion right now um, that need our attention. One is that how the, the Democrat opposition to this is just madness. I mean, they, they are the, the dishonesty. I mean, Hillary, I know I told you on Friday, is like, Republicans are the death party, um, which is wrong and, and, uh, and deeply uh, irritating to hear from a Democrat for a number of reasons, not least of which the Democrats because of their stance on uh, on life and on uh, abortion uh, cannot be thought of as anything other than the party of death, but uh, that they would use the rhetoric they're using right now about the Republican health care plan is so divorced from reality because I don't think the plan that the Senate Republicans are looking at goes nearly far enough. So on the one hand, you got Democrats saying that this is the uh, the end of the world as we know it, and things are not going to be fine. I mean, they're saying this is going to be terrible. Here, here. I mean, here's a here's an example. Master legislator. Can we? The master legislator Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she says that. Well, I'll just let you hear it from Nancy herself. We haven't seen the CBO report yet. Uh, we do know that the uh, many more people. Millions, hundreds of thousands of people will die if this bill passes. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people will die. That's the, that woman was third in line for the presidency not long ago, everybody. She was Speaker of the House not long ago, most powerful legislator in the country. Among the most senior, connected, and powerful Democrats in the Democrat Party. Hundreds of thousands of people will die, she says, if the Republican plan goes through. M meanwhile, uh, well, so you got Democrats saying that, and she's not the only one. Um, oh, Bernie Sanders. 
when he's not on the phone with his lawyers to deal with the uh, federal criminal investigation into allegations of bank fraud. What are you talking about? Um, he's also dealing with this issue of health care. And he says, oh, yeah, people, people will die. Thousands of Americans will die. If you are sick, if you have a chronic illness and you can't get the kind of care you need, you die. Or maybe you will just suffer year after year after year. Republicans the worst piece of legislation. Now, here's, uh, here's the problem, uh, or one of many problems really on this. Still no one's being particularly honest about what's at issue and, and what's going on here. The Republican bill, as it stands right now, and it, it is in the process of changing. Oh, we do have a CBO report, by the way. So, and no surprise, the CBO report says that uh, 22 million people, 22 million more people will be uninsured by 2026 under the Senate health care's plan. First of all, the Senate, uh, or sorry, the CBO has no idea what's going to happen with health care by 2026. Um, that's, and, and their projections about Obamacare in the past and how effective the individual mandate would be, those have been wrong time and time again. So they have a, a history of being wrong on this issue, and it's not to blame or beat up on the CBO, but there's some level of garbage in, garbage out. The politicians feed them the numbers that are sketchy at best, and then they come out with even sketchier projections well into the future. I mean, do you really, do you really think that there's any government office that can tell you what the state of our health care system is going to be in 2026 right now? You got the Senate still figuring out what they're going to do on this bill. We're not even sure Republicans are going to go forward with it, right? The status of it right now is that it's, one, on a timeline. They're trying to get it done before the 4th of July break. But you got Ted Cruz, uh, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, Ron Johnson, and I think uh, Heller out in Nevada all having all having problems with this one so far. So, oh, and Susan Collins as well is a little a little iffy, Susan Collins of Maine. So as we, we look at this bill, let's understand that it's, it's fascinating to see the Democrat opposition to this. They are, it, it's like they have a playbook and some, some big, you know, dusty tomb of 100 pages about what to do when Republicans are finally in place and in power to repeal and replace Obamacare. And they're running that playbook, even though Republicans aren't replacing and repealing it. They're modifying it. They're changing some of the way that Medicaid uh, will be funded and the level of funding going forward. But keep in mind, even even the Republican bill is calling for like 70 billion ish. I forget what the exact number is of additional Medicaid spending um, based on the pre Obamacare projections. O Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, ACA wants like over 200 billion of additional Medicaid spending over what was already going to be spent on Medicaid before. And let's understand what this is, everyone. This is just taxpayer-funded health care. This is just free health care for people. Um, it's not market-based. It's it's the the bill goes to the government. A lot of providers don't want to take it. The care is poor. In fact, when they look at the efficacy, the uh, the level of effectiveness of Medicaid in getting better health outcomes, it's really poor. It does a bad job of making people healthier, which call me crazy. My opinion of what matters most in healthcare is: does it make people healthier? Does it deal with their health problems? And the and with Medicaid, the answer is no. You may have insurance, and then you have a piece of card that says or piece of paper that says, uh, you know, I have Medicaid, and 
maybe if you go in for strep throat to a local clinic, you know, the bill will get sent to the government or somebody else pays it, and that's nice and that's good. Uh, but if you think that you're going to get world-class, you know, uh, world-class heart surgery done for everybody who has a, a Medicaid card, um, that's just not that's just not reality. Uh, you know, we're dealing with a convergence here in the healthcare debate between our emotions and the market, between morality and reality. Uh, we have this perception now that everyone should get health care, that it's now the government's place. But by, by the way, I, I view all of this as unconstitutional. All this using of a mandate or, oh, no, it's going to be a six month penalty or we're going to. You know, what what happened to the conservatives of but a few years ago? Many of them are now advocating for this Republican bill who would have said, oh, the government doesn't even have the right to be involved in the healthcare business at all in this way, to be making these mandates and making these decisions. And then it's really all just an extension. That's right. I'm going to go Wickard v. Filburn here. It's an extension of the Supreme Court's terrible decision in Wickard v. Filburn that said that you can't even grow wheat for usage within your own state because it affects the price of wheat in other states. Therefore, there's really no such thing as non-interstate commerce. All commerce is interstate commerce because commerce can't be limited to one area. Therefore, the federal government can involve itself in any market in any way that it wants to, including forcing you now to buy a product. Inactivity. This was what the whole Supreme Court case was all about. This is why this is where Republicans were fighting this battle. By the way, you should note, And I know people don't necessarily want to hear this. Look, there's a victory for the Trump administration on the travel ban today, no question. And is the Republican health care bill a little better than Obamacare? Of course. But let's not pretend. I I don't like to just skip to the end and pretend that it's happy. Let's understand what we're being told to forget right now. First of all, we're being told to forget the seven seven years or so, eight years, I guess, Uh, Eight years of repeal and replace of Obamacare. This is not a repeal. Full stop. It is not a repeal. That is not accurate. We are also being told to forget about the core constitutional objections to the federal government's role in deciding how much medical care you can get, what price that medical care should be, what's a legitimate policy for you to have. Government's still doing that. Yeah, over time, this maybe will give more power to the states, but... The federal government's still way too involved. And I do not, and I I have to go into a break here, so I'm going long, but I I do not like this additional pressure that we're getting now. I've just started to see this last couple of days of, oh, come on, we need to to get this bill done so we can do taxes. Oh, okay. So now the health care reform process is being held hostage to the tax reform process uh, so we should just forget about what, one, we were promised, and two, we want. Because don't get in the way, man. This is a movement or something. I don't know. I mean, if you think Mitch McConnell's leading a movement, that's we, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, we've got to talk more about this, though. And, and also the uh, latest with the Russia collusion stuff, because that's really— that's now heading deeper and deeper into just tinfoil hat territory, and, and they're, they're scrambling now in the media. They've lost so much ground on that. We'll give you more on the Supreme Court case, uh, Supreme Court decisions that came down today, as well as major one that's looming in the future, a case that will be taken up by the court. It'll have huge implications. And then I've just got a lot of other really interesting stuff to talk to you about. So uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Team, we'll be right back.
Well, they're saying that uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, will be killed by this Republican plan, um, which I, I would think that, that that's just another way of saying the Republicans are murderers, right? Or the, the, the blood of those that will die because of this is, is on the hands of the GOP. I mean, we already had Elizabeth Warren last week say it's blood money. Hillary say they're the party of death. This is, this is not normal for a discussion about future projections of funding for government programs that are, I think, by all accounts, very complicated, have many different facets to them. Um, but they're saying that 22 million more people, according to the CBO, um, will be uninsured by the end of the coming decade. And that's about a million fewer than the version passed by the House. It'll reduce federal spending by $321 billion by 2026. The House version only uh, reduces spending by $119 billion. Uh, by the way, you probably know it, we, we, spend a, we spend a lot of money on Medicaid. Um, and that's really, that's the huge objection to this because the individual mandate may technically be gone, but now they've added a waiting period for six months. So if you don't buy, so if you're in the individual market, right, if you're somebody that is currently has to deal with the individual markets with Obamacare and you go without coverage, if the Senate bill goes as is, which it won't, it's probably going to go into a, uh, a a committee process to iron out the differences between the House bill and the Senate bill. But anyway, um, but let's just say it went through as is. That means that if you dropped coverage for any period, uh, I guess it's over 30 days, or I forget, there's some, if you drop per- uh, coverage for a certain period of time, you have to wait six months before you can go back into the market. So then we have to ask the question, okay, do those people then, what happens? Do they, they not get care? Okay, no, they'll get they'll have to get life saving care because we mandate that. But just, then they they have to pay for it. Then they'll be bankrupted, right? So we're back to consequences and actions here. This is no one likes to talk about this with healthcare. Um, it, it's so much more fun to just pull a Bernie Sanders here. I see he's saying we should just give. He says instead of taking healthcare away from twenty two million people, we should just give healthcare to everyone. Um, okay, how much how much healthcare? Uh, and who pays for it? And what does that what does that mean? Uh, and if, by the way, your age and your lifestyle choices and all of the above, if none of that can be taken into account, we need to stop calling this insurance. It's not insurance. This is just government-mandated social justice cross-subsidies, right? You're, someone else is paying for your stuff. You're paying for someone else's stuff. And it's opaque on purpose. It's hard to see through it because they don't want you to see through it because they want to be determining who gets what and when and how much of it. Uh, the CBO report, look, the, the press gets all excited about CBO reports when it's bad for Republicans, when it's good for Republicans. Hey, CBO, who needs them? So yeah, that's all a very politicized part of this. Um, we'll have to see. Um, we'll have to see what the reality is here of the Republican holdouts. Will they uh, will they go into the July 4th recess without a vote on this bill? Um, I think the pressure for them to do something to vote at least is going to be very high. I don't know if I don't know if they can sell Rand Paul and everyone else on this. We'll be right back. The 
Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. So, uh, the health care bill um, may, in fact, uh, go through this week. We'll see. Uh, I think that this is now being pushed forward uh, at a number of levels. Um, one of them is just that people want the Trump administration to get some uh, political momentum going here. If this passes, then other things can be passed, most notably tax reform. And the president himself has been saying that he, he thinks this is, it's probably going to happen. I have great relationships with most of the people in the Senate, with, as you know, most of the people in the House. I think I really, I work very hard. I made a lot of great friendships with the people in the House, a lot of them. Uh, same thing in the Senate. They're four very good people. They're friends of mine. And I don't think they're that far off. I don't think they're that far off. You know, famous last words, right? But I think we're going to get there. Can't promise. I think we're going to get there. Chuck Schumer earlier today, I saw, said that he thinks it's 50-50-50 that the Republicans actually pass this thing. Um, I, I think that's that's probably pretty good, odd, pretty good odds from a... Chuck Schumer. Um, Republicans. He's, a, he's not a charming fellow, that Schumer, but nonetheless. Um, he, uh, he said 50-50. I, I think... I think that if this goes through, people will be happy that, once again, like with the House bill, the Republicans are actually doing something. It, it answers, for at least a short time, it answers the question of what are we, what exactly are we paying you for, which is a good thing. Um, but the, uh, the big change that was added in today to the Senate bill is that they want to add in this window where you can't buy, uh, you can't buy coverage. Um, you can't buy coverage for six months if your insurance lapses. Now, how, how different is that really? Let, let's just spend a, how different is that really from an individual mandate whereby you pay a financial penalty? Now they're saying, well, if you don't buy coverage, we're going to lock you out of the market for six months. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to socially engineer healthier people into the market um, because th- that's what this really all comes down to. Uh, they need young people to pay more money into the system than they're going to get out of the system. Otherwise, this whole thing falls apart. Otherwise, you have the the insurance exchange death spiral and the whole thing. Right? They need people that have low expectations of health care spending and health care needs to be willing to pay every month to pay for insurance premiums that they are unlikely to use or unlikely to use much of, unlikely to need much care, so that people who are sick or are likelier to be sick, uh, generally tend to be a little bit older, and uh, will have someone subsidizing their costs. That's what this is. Everything else is kind of like just fancy happy talk. That's what this is. The, the Republicans are trying to do what the Democrats were trying to do, which is force people to pay more who wouldn't otherwise pay more so they can pay for other people's stuff. Uh, and it's it's not insurance, it's care, because you're you're not uh, basing this all on the you know if you if one person gets into five accidents, another person gets into zero accidents. Guess what? The first person has higher premiums. We we've gotten rid of that now. We've we've decided that pre-existing conditions, community rating, all these different factors, 
we're, we're not allowed to take this into account. And and with the Senate bill, I know, and I think the House bill was similar. Older people will will pay more, or pay, but it's not what it would just be if the insurance companies were looking at what your likely health expenditures were. It's it's still um, there's still a lot of of tinkering with the numbers to make it politically more palatable. Uh, I I think this is now uh, this is the unpleasant reality, and I, I don't th- you know it'd be more fun. I, there's so many people out there right now that they're just. They're just it's just the Trump, uh, the Trump chorus all the time and that everything that they're and this is really the Republicans in the Congress so far, by the way. I mean, Trump is shepherding this along at some level as uh, the most prominent has the most prominent megaphone for it. But this is really the this is Mitch McConnell's right now. This is Mitch McConnell's barbecue. Everybody else is just helping cook the food and eat it, I guess. But Mitch McConnell's running the show. Uh it's it's more popular, generally speaking, to say, oh, isn't this great? Great, look what Republicans are doing. You know, MAGA, make America great again. Trump is kicking butt. Everything is great. Here's the real truth of this. And they were the Republicans were willing to tell you this a while ago, but they're not really willing to tell you this today. Obamacare's never, based on the conversation that's being had right now, Obamacare is never really going away. Uh, we, we are accepting now that the federal government has a a role in creating uh, exchange, you know, in creating legislation or in creating regulation that makes determinations about the healthcare market that are not based in market principles. They're based in political realities and what is effective at getting votes. That's it. Uh, Obamacare is in one way or another, some some formulation of Obamacare, here to stay with all kinds of government subsidies involved for keeping exchanges afloat. I mean, they're shoveling a lot of money still at exchanges. I think it was $100 billion, uh, was the number I saw most recently. I mean, the numbers are changing because there's this ongoing negotiation, and also the part of this is how do you do the projections and the projections right. But uh, th- this, is not, this is not solving the problem. This is not making it all. This is not going to do... Remember, the initial promise for Obamacare was that it would... Uh, Cover more people with better care at less cost, which does sound magical. It does sound amazing, doesn't it? Uh, what the Republicans are doing now doesn't achieve that. What Obama, what Obama did, it clearly didn't achieve that, right? But the Republicans are doing doesn't achieve that. But it also doesn't even return us to the status quo pre-Obamacare. It still has a much larger role for the government involved in health care at all these different levels and Look, I, it's just—it's tough to just get that excited about it. I—I I, I cannot lie to you on this. Uh, it's not based in the free market. You are still—you see, part of the the process that is not getting any attention here is that when there's greater consumer choice, um, there's also an incentive for the providers to provide more efficient service, better service, just like everything else we see. Why does your phone get smarter? cheaper, faster, better every year, right? Because there are other phone companies out there. And, you know, this is this is Econ 101. Y- you spend the dollars where you want to spend the dollars. There's competition for your dollars. You're, you're in charge. With healthcare now, you have limited choice of insurers. Your insurers are being told by the federal government currently what they have to insure and what they don't have to insure. And Prices are being messed with so that you're not paying what you really should pay based on your profile. You're paying something that will a portion of it will go to give health care to other people. And all all through this process, you are stifling 
the power of the market to for or to to encourage to entice healthcare providers to get better, faster, less wait times, better doctor care, better doctor service, better treatments. All that is all that is all suppressed because they're going to be dealing more with bureaucracy and they're dealing more with you know the mandates and 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 maybe this Republican bill would be better than Obamacare on those fronts. I think it probably would be. And uh, you know we had our friend Ovik Roy on last week who said it's great on the Medicaid. On, on the dealing with Medicaid. And of course, the, what they don't talk about here is sure, maybe less people will be on Medicaid in the future, but that's hopefully because they'd be able to be on private insurance. And private insurance across the board tends to just be better than, at any level, tends to be better than Medicaid. Right? Who, do you, who do you complain to when your Medicaid uh, provider is not doing a good enough job? The government? Good luck with that. Where, you know, where do you go? Um, but this is all, unfortunately, uh, because we want to, we buy into this as a country, and it, and it's more bipartisan than we want to admit. It's entirely true of the Democrat Party, but it's that's largely true of the Republican Party now too. We all kind of want somebody else to pay for our health care. Um, we all want to be uh, inoculated in some way against our own decision making. You know, against are we going to go without health care? Okay. That's your choice. But then if you get really sick and you go bankrupt, that was also your choice, right? You're unlucky. Okay, well, we don't want that to happen. So now we're going to force people, we're going to force everybody to buy into the system. But we're not even forcing them to buy in just for catastrophic care. Now we're going to force them to buy into the system so that there's subsidies for people to uh, you know, get prenatal care and subsidies for people to get acupuncture and subsidies, you know, whatever it is. It depends on the state you're in. So um, this is not... It's just it's not what we were promised. And if we want to move past that and say, okay, Buck, well, it's the art of the possible. That's what politics is. Okay, fine. But let's just be honest about that then. Let's not pretend that this was one, what we were promised, or two, that this is a return to uh constitutionalism and a return to a free market or not even a return, a a turn toward a much more free market-based healthcare system. So as you can see, I'm, I, and I'm mixed on this thing. I, I think we all should be a little mixed on it. And I'm not even, sh- I think, you know, I shouldn't make a prediction on this. I'll probably be wrong on it. But um, my sense is they're going to vote and they're going to go and they're going to go through on it. That's my sense, but I could be wrong. Um, and then it'll have to go into conference and who knows where it'll go from there. What do you think about this? Am, am, I, am I being uh, too harsh, not harsh enough on the Senate health care bill? Uh, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, that's 844-900-2825. We'll take a call or two, and then we're going to move on to the Supreme Court cases, and then Russia collusion nonsense, and much, much more. Uh, stay with me. Mike in Ohio, W-H-O-L. What's up, Mike? Hey, Buck, I, I'm hearing about the CBO and uh, their record or their their projections on what is this going to save us or, or whatnot reminds me of the rating agencies back in 2007, 2006, when they were rating all of these subprime bond offerings as AAA and that they were insured and there was the gold standard. When has the CBO ever been right? They've never been right. And I'd like to see these liberal Wall Street types really put their money where their mouth is and issue a large revenue bond, right, a large municipal revenue bond, and allow the market to put money into how we're going to fund 
this wonderful expansion of Medicaid and everything else, because if we're going to save money at the end of 10 years, well, then they can share the money that would have been saved over what we would have paid, right, with their investors. And we'll see how many people invest in that bond offering. What do you think of that? Uh, I, I love that idea in the sense that I think anytime people have to really uh, put their money behind what they politically pretend to believe, uh, you start to see the truth. I mean, this is another version of, you know, when when people in Malibu will sell me their beach house at a 50 percent discount because global because climate change means they're going to be underwater in 10 years. You know, th- then I'll take them more seriously. Right. So, yeah, the, the, the savings that are supposed to kick in by 2026. And I should note that's where the, the Republicans, the, the part of this that I think is most exciting for some Republicans is, OK, well, it'll cut the deficit or at least be less bad for the deficit over a period of time. Um, but but that's not. Yeah. It's about, but who knows? I mean, 2026, who knows who's going to be president? You could have president. You could have President Sanders by then or President Warren or, you know, who but, knows? It's a slippery slope. If, if you look at, you know, what they like to call these other really great countries around the world that have these wonderful, you know, medical programs. If you look around, once they get that camel's nose right under the carpet, what ends up happening is, is you start having more and more things that are covered. You have more and more placating towards the class warfare. And what ends up happening, it's a slippery slope, but I'm afraid we're too far down it. And I think this if we get some type of compromise where we really believe in these CBO numbers, then I, I think it's lost already. I mean, it's only a matter of time before we go to single payer. And it's really a shame because we're the last great hope of innovation medically and technology in the world, and uh, it, it, they're ruining. Yeah, I do think they want – I mean, I, I know they want single payer. Sanders was open about it in, in the Democrat primary and – uh, I, they're they're turning this into a moral imperative. That's what the discussion is switching to. Doesn't they're they're saying uh, increasingly, Mike? Doesn't matter what it costs. Although you see with California, four hundred billion dollars a year, they're not ready to do that. They're they're not ready to go there quite yet and, and give everyone single payer in the state of California. I would love a state like California to try that because it would be such a worthwhile experiment and and the failure I think would be so so swift and catastrophic and to have all of these. Uh, you know, pro Sanders, yuppie Silicon Valley, uh, and you know Santa Monica types, all of a sudden not able to get health care that they want to get, and, and all of a sudden you know they're, they're waiting in line to see specialists for months, and and it's you know it's not working out for them anymore. That might change their minds a little bit on, on how much they think the government should be calling all the shots. Well, and I've heard you say it, and I don't want to keep you too long, but I've heard you say it before, and it's true. If, I, if a cardiac surgeon is working on my wife or my children, um, I'm not terribly concerned if he or she drives a Ferrari and lives in a very large home. In fact, I want them to be very rested. I want them to be exceptionally schooled at what they're trying to do, and I don't want them worried about their car payment. So, you know, it all depends on what we're trying to get in the end. And I think one move is if we really went back to catastrophic insurance rather than this pay-as-you-go uh, co-payment type of model, which is really deceiving because y- your co-payment really isn't your co-payment. You're either paying it in higher premiums or you're paying it more in your co-payment. It's it's very deceiving, and these individuals that are out there that are that are pushing this are really not being fair to those that they supposedly say. Yeah, well, they're they're lying. To, I mean, they're look they're lying to people about what what's real here with healthcare and what's not. Mike in Ohio, thank you for calling him and uh, very astute analysis. Um, you know, this is until the, the real Republican health care plan should be, OK, we're going to 
people that make below a certain amount qualify for Medicaid, um, and people that make above that, there should be a tiered phase out of how much of your health care the government will, you know, help out with, and 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 it should be. You can buy a plan that's that's just the there are health health insurers that are out there, and you know you read your document. It says this is what we'll cover, this is what we won't, and basically get the American people used to instead of spending as much money on you know eating out or you know I don't know however people spend money on you know on their ATVs or on their jet skis or whatever. Um, people are going to spend people who make over a certain amount are going to spend more like the first five or ten thousand dollars of their health care that that's just going to be their expense yeah i know this is not politically popular stuff right but what ends up happening is the plans are all moving that direction anyway uh, most plans that i see by the time you really because they do this whole thing about you know reasonable and customary and so when it look when you look at real expenditures for an illness under a lot of plans, before you get coverage that really kicks in, you're spending a few, th- you know, three, four, five thousand dollars out of pocket. So this is what's happening anyway. Is what I'm trying to say. We're just led to believe that oh no, there's a way that it's just going to be twenty dollar copay and then everything will be taken care of. No, that's not the way. Or thirty dollar copay or whatever it is. That's not the way it's going to be. It just doesn't work. I wish it could, but it, but it doesn't work that way. And it should be a an insurance plan. And Ron Paul was, I mean, sorry, Rand Paul, pardon me, uh, was saying, you know, you should be able to buy insurance for a dollar a day. Yeah, you should be able to buy insurance for a dollar a day. And it should probably cover you, you know, over, you know, for catastrophic illness, you know, over 20 or 30 grand. And b- until you get to that point, your savings and credit cards, my friends. But it, this is not, it's just not politically feasible right now. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. They, uh, they want it. They want to be on the, uh, the the cheerleader squad for anything the Republicans are doing, or they want to say that the Republicans are the death squad, you know, that the, the Republicans are the party of death and they're doing all this terrible stuff. I mean, you know, very little uh, reasonable, rational, honest discussion about what's really happening in the healthcare market right now. And it's just frustrating because if you're not even diagnosing the problem, if you're not even diagnosing the malady in our healthcare system properly, uh, you're... Uh, prognosis is not going to be good, and the uh, suggestions for—I'm trying to continue this medical analogy, but I'm forgetting—your your prescriptions will be faulty. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court in a second. Stay with me. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, everybody, we've got Art Arthur on the line. He's a resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, Art, thank you so much for joining. Glad to be here, Buck. All right, so let's talk a bit about this decision, well, what we know so far, at least. It'll be taken up in the fall, but uh, it is Trump versus International Refugee Assistance Project. But as of today, what has changed? What is the partial implementation of the Trump travel ban? Well, it's actually been a fairly major change, but one that's probably going to lead to a lot more uh, litigation. What the Supreme Court did today was it, uh, one, granted certiorari with respect to the Ninth Circuit and Fourth Circuit decisions that uh, have enjoined the implementation of certain parts of the uh, president's travel order. 
And it also granted the government's application to stay uh, injunctions issued by those courts, but only with respect to certain individuals. And that's people who lack any bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. Now, a bona fide relationship would be family members or somebody who's already been accepted to a school, right? They they said that there there are some people who do who do have a right to not fall under this ban, right? That's exactly what they say, and uh, you're exactly correct. Family members, individuals who have been uh, uh, accepted by schools, uh, businesses that have accepted individuals, those individuals would also be allowed to come, as well as refugees who have uh, similar ties to the United States, family members here or organizations that are ready to accept them. Now, this is uh, a, a victory for the Trump administration, at least what we know from today. Uh, what are your thoughts about where this is going to go when the court takes this up? All, all nine justices look at this uh, come this fall. Well, it is interesting. Uh, and uh, keep in mind that there were three judges uh, who dissented in part because, quite frankly, they would have just done away with the injunctions entirely. That's Justice Thomas, Justice Leto, and uh, the new justice, Justice Gorsuch. Justice Thomas, writing for the, uh, for the three, said, look, we would have just, you know, um, uh, done away with the injunctions, and you've set up a system that is just going to lead to a lot more case law. But we know from this that there are at least three out of the nine justices who are probably going to vote to uphold uh, the uh, travel order uh, as a whole. The question becomes uh, what Justice Roberts and, more importantly, what Justice Kennedy are thinking. So uh, I anticipate that given the, the fact that they've granted certiorari, that there's probably a good chance that those two justices will vote with the uh, three who issued the dissent and uh, that the Trump uh, travel order will become law. And uh, tell me, by the way, about uh, fraud in the credible fear process, threats to the integrity of the asylum system. This is a piece that you wrote. Uh, what's what's this all about? Well, a lot of people assume that, uh, you know, if we put a wall up that, you know, people aren't going to be able to get into the United States and that we won't have to worry about any individuals coming from the South. But in reality, most of the people who come over the border illegally today try to find the first Border Patrol agent that they can find or find the first uh, inspector that they can find so that they can uh, request asylum. They say, I want asylum or I have a credible fear of being sent back. They're brought into the United States and given the opportunity to have those cases heard. The only problem is that, um, and they're heard by, uh, by U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, in the vast majority of those cases, if you say you have a credible fear, you're found to have a credible fear, and then you get the opportunity to appear before a judge uh, to you know, have an asylum claim. Under the Obama administration, most if, uh, many, if not most, of those people were released, and so consequently, they had a strong incentive to come and make fraudulent claims. Um, but the problem is that neither the uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services or the immigration courts are very good at identifying fraud in that process. And so um, the level of fraud is unknown, but it's probably pretty high. We're talking to Art Arthur. He's a resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Art, how, how would that process work? So let's say if, if I show up and I'm from uh, Honduras, and I've crossed the U.S.-Mexico border, and as you say, I've gone and I found the first Border Patrol agent that I can and say, hey, I'm here, I want to request asylum. Uh, then I, I go into a, what, an, an immigration court, and I say, there's a lot of gang violence where I'm from, on my street it's really dangerous, you know, they, they killed my cousin, they, they might kill me if I go back, I'm really scared, make me a permanent resident, right? I mean, is, is that, how this, that how this can play out, or what, what are the is- steps in the process? 
That is pretty much how it plays out in uh, a large number of cases. You don't automatically become a lawful permanent resident. You get granted asylum status. And then after a year or two years, you can request uh, a green card from that point. But, yeah, that's exactly what happens. And part of the problem is that the courts aren't very good at issuing decisions that allow us to sort out those claims. You know, is being threatened by a gang, is that a ground for asylum or not? Quite frankly, we've seen tens of thousands of these cases, and the question is still unanswered. So these are real issues that the Trump administration is going to have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, to your point about about uh, figuring out if there's fraud in this process, if someone comes from a, a, a poor and dangerous country where there's a lot of violence, can't anyone pretty much claim that, you know, well, if I go back, I mean, the, the drug gangs might get me. Well, yes, that that is unfortunately true. So what does that mean? Does that mean everybody who wants to come from that country gets to come? It seems like it's uh, pretty wide. And and even if somebody were able to speak of uh, with greater specificity to the threats against them in that country, what proof could they offer, right? I mean, if someone says that they, I don't know, they, they received a threat from a, the local you know cartel leader or something, what, are you going to try to disprove that, send an investigative team down into Central America? It seems unlikely. That's exactly the problem. And there's a saying in immigration law that persecutors don't give affidavits. So the fact is, by and large, we're relying upon the word of the individual who is testifying. But, you know, the credibility of that person is not very well known and very difficult to discern because, one, they're testifying through an interpreter. You're not actually hearing the person speak directly. And two, unless you actually know what's going on in the individual village or know what's going on with respect to the specific gang, the ability of the judge or the asylum officer to uh, test the veracity of that person is fairly limited. And uh, t- tell me a bit about what you think about the extreme vetting uh, part of what Trump has proposed in the executive order, because I don't think that was specifically dealt with with today uh, when they uh, overturned the stay, right, or when they when they got rid of the stay on the executive order that the Trump administration had put forward. Uh, are, are, are One, are we going to end up with extreme vetting? And two, do you think that's even really possible? I, uh, the, the, the good part about the extreme vetting is that the Ninth Circuit uh, actually rolled back earlier this month, rolled back an injunction that a Hawaiian district court judge had put in that even prevented the government from assessing what they're going to be looking for. It's possible. But here's the biggest problem, Buck. We don't really know much about people who come from countries that don't have relations for us, with us or that don't have uh, uh, stable governments because there's really no city hall that we can go back to in Mogadishu to you know, verify whether this uh, birth certificate actually pertains to this person. So that's what the government is looking at right now is to determine what evidence we're going to need in order to assess people's uh, uh, applications going forward so that we can sort out the, the good people from the bad people. And in general, on immigration right now for the administration, based on the promises that were made over the course of the campaign and what we've seen uh, Trump and the Republican-led Congress uh, try to enact or or actually enact so far, uh, h- how do you think they're doing? I mean, based on what our expectations should be? Well, they're actually good metrics that we can look to, and that's the number of people who are apprehended uh, either at the ports of entry or attempting to come over the border. And those numbers are way down. I mean, 80 percent down since uh, the president uh, took office. So maybe it's just the power of rhetoric. Maybe it's these policies are actually taking effect. But uh, the fact is that people are attempting to enter uh, the United States legally in a lot in a lower number. So it shows that some good is being done. But the uh, president needs to uh, you know, stick by these policies 
policies if he wants them to be effective. And uh, you met uh, people claiming asylum. That's obviously one way they get in the country. Visa overstays for those who come here. I know that uh, half a million a year is the most recent number that I saw, which seems like a lot. Uh, But should a wall still be built? And is a wall possible? Well, definitely there are places along the border that we need to have uh, pedestrian fencing that will you know, stop people from just simply walking into the United States. There are other places where there are natural, natural barriers and you're not going to be able to get in illegally. So, but the most important thing that we need to focus on is the Border Patrol agents who are going to be down there enforcing the law. Keep in mind, these guys are government employees. They're hardworking government employees, but they're government employees. And you know, they work eight, nine, ten hours a day, but the fact is you know, having a full complement of people around the clock along the border is is fairly critical. Art Arthur of the uh, Center for Immigration Studies. Appreciate you joining us, sir. Thank you. Buck, it's great talking to you. Have a good night. You too. Uh, team, we're going to take a break, but uh, first, a uh, l- number if you want to call in, talk about anything that we've been hitting on so far this show, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Another decision that came down today, by the way, 7-2 uh, from the court. Big day for the Supreme Court today. Woo! Party. Uh, Supreme Court of the United States here, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, uh, v. Missouri Department of Natural Resources. Uh, here's the, the short version of this one. So the state had a, uh, a thing where they take used tires— uh, and they will, if you qualify, you can apply for a program where they'll take the, the state will take these used tires and resurface your playground. So it's a nice rubberized surface. And so no more boo-boos on your knees or on your elbow if you're playing in the playground. You know, you don't scrape yourself up because you got this rubberized tire surface stuff there, um, which, you know, makes the playground a little nicer, a little safer it's from recycled tires. So uh, the department, this is uh, this Missouri department, though, said that they would not they would not give this this used tire stuff. (laughs) Hey, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's fancy. Uh, They would not give the used tire material to Trinity Lutheran Church for its playground. Um, So they took this to court. And sure enough. Uh, seven to two, they found that no, sorry, it's not like a separation of church and state issue when a church is uh, getting a, an otherwise a publicly available service for just all people who are residents and citizens uh, of a place, right? So, you know, it, it like it's sort of like the way that it, it wouldn't be. It's not a separation of church and state issue when like, well, like, you know, the auditorium that is next to the church is, uh, is you know, on fire right now. So can the fire department? I mean, that's taxpayer dollars. I mean, of course, right? Yeah, of course it has to come in and put out that fire. Uh, if they're offering up this uh, taxpayer-funded service to all people, and, it, and there's basic qualifications for it, right? I, I don't know what they are, but they were pretty nominal. If you uh, meet them, you should be able to. You shouldn't be denied them. You shouldn't be de- denied an otherwise available public benefit just because you are a religious group, right? And sure enough, seven two, the court went 
in favor of uh, Trinity Lutheran here is pr- pretty uh, pretty amazing um, to to think that this was even a case that would have to get to this this point. I think uh, gives you a sense of where religious freedom really is in this country. I mean, you've got the Little Sisters of the Poor being forced to uh, deal with the Obamacare contraception mandate. Trinity Lutheran can't get used tire uh, surfacing for its playground. Uh, and then, this wasn't decided today, but you can expect, I, mean, I, I think this will be among the most contentious decisions we've seen in a long, in a long time. Certainly, I think, it might be the most contentious decision. Well, the the decision would come down next year, I think, in the spring. Uh, but they will be hearing this fall. They granted certiorari, uh, cert, cert, uh, granted cert. It's an easier way to say it. Uh, that's how the 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 legal legal folks refer to it the religious liberty case that has to do with Masterpiece Cake Shop and the owner, Jack Phillips. Uh, In 2012, a couple received... This is the... Do you have to bake a cake... Do you have to bake a cake for a gay wedding if you're an evangelical cake baker, basically? That's that's this case. Uh, And this has come up at times in the past. And by the way, as others have noted, I, I think... It's clear that there are some activists who, to make a point, seek out. I mean, I mean, how many evangelical wedding cake bakers do you know? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there, I'm sure there are some, but a number of them seem to get found and put in the situation. I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, But and it wasn't. There's also been people I think who like wouldn't uh, what they wouldn't do pizza or something for a, a gay wedding. I don't know. They wouldn't cater a gay wedding. Um, but th- this is one involving a guy who wouldn't bake a cake for a gay wedding and uh, back in 2012. But when he was asked to do it, I should note, um, it was in Colorado where it was uh, in 2006, which is when this actually... Uh, oh, no, sorry. I'm getting my dates mixed up here. But anyway, it was back in Colorado, and uh, that was at a time when... It was constitutionally defined, the state constitutionally defined marriages between a man and a woman. And this guy didn't want to bake a cake for the gay wedding. And now we're going to get into this very contentious discussion because, as you know, the Supreme Court decided in the Obergefell decision that gay marriage is the uh, gay marriage is now law of the land. I know plenty of conservatives have yelled at me or gotten mad at me for saying that that's the case because they say the Supreme Court doesn't make the law and. Okay, fine, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, uh, that is the it is the law of the land. I mean, it, it is it is now legal. You know, you can get a wedding, uh, or sorry, you can get a marriage certificate as a same sex couple in all fifty states. So that that's as much the law as I think you can be right now. So here's what this is going to turn into: a discussion over whether refusing to bake a cake for a gay wedding, if you are a believing Christian. By the way, you'll notice that they never go to the uh, or at least not that I'm aware of, if not filing suit against a Muslim bakery somewhere or a, a, uh, a devout Muslim. And the ACLU and other groups seem to always have a, a double standard when it comes to non when it comes to non-Christian or non-conservative uh, Jewish religious issues. Right. That, that, then all of a sudden, you know, Christians and Christians and Jews, they 
they're always a problem when it comes to separation of church and state. But everybody else, you know, we make special exceptions for them um, if we're the ACLU or some of these other groups. So uh, this is what it's going to come down to. Are are you allowed to uh, discriminate? Well, that's even—see, this is the problem, even the language you use is— are you allowed to refuse participation in a uh, in a gay wedding as a business owner? What they're going to say is, and the way this argument's going to come down is, well, it's like saying, can you refuse service? This turns into a civil rights debate, a civil rights discussion. Can you refuse service to a person because of skin color in your restaurant or establishment? That's what the left will say. Just under, understand that that's where it will go right away. Um, because they'll say, well, it's the lo- the gay marriage is now legal in all 50 states, so you are choosing as a public accommodation, um, you are choosing as a business owner to deny someone your services on the basis of what is a legally protected category. Uh, this one is going to be, I, I think this is going to be very contentious. I, and that's a, sorry, that's a statement of the obvious. It is definitely going to be very contentious. Um, because at some point you get into the, the place of, okay, well, does a Catholic church have to be, uh, does a Catholic church has to have to perform a, uh, a same-sex wedding? Is that where we are? It, because I, I don't know where the, okay, so now it's religious institutions, maybe they won't force them to violate their uh, precepts, their beliefs, but we will force people in their business lives to do so. And I, I, by the way, I think that that may be where this goes. I, I think there's a very strong possibility that this goes 5-4 against the Baker with Kennedy joining the liberals. That's my, that is my guess. Uh, I do not see this uh, going the way of the Baker because, you know, the the culture has gone so far in favor of not just uh, you can't discriminate against same-sex couples, but if you are unwilling to celebrate same-sex marriage, you are a pariah. You are going to be punished uh, professionally and personally. So th- this uh, didn't get as much headlines as certainly the uh, Obama, I mean, the uh, Trump executive order today, because that has immediate effect. And it shows the administration is at least partially correct. And these judges that have been overturning it left and right are just making stuff up. Uh, but this case, uh, well, like I said, there was a win for religious liberty today in, Minis- in Missouri. But this case about the wedding cake and the same-sex ceremony, this is going to be a blockbuster Supreme Court case heard this fall. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. Buck. Sexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. So the press are upset about uh, the change in policy for right now when it comes to uh, press briefings at the White House. Uh, They've allowed photographs, but they're not turning on the video cameras. Uh, So (laughs) there's... There's been some restrictions put in place for daily briefings with reporters. Uh, there was a sketch. CNN had a sketch artist come in to cover the briefing last last week. Uh, I haven't talked to you much about this. Uh, the White House has held 10 off-camera briefings compared to five on-camera ones. 
Um, the administration has chosen to restrict news organizations, according to The Hill, uh, from airing footage of the briefings in real time. Uh, and yeah, look, they're 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 trying to control the message. And I have to say, I, what you really see here are some of the uh, the those who are assigned to the White House. That's their on camera time. People that work in media, by the way, are are generally are just generally terrible. They're incredibly uh, selfish and vain and self important and gross. Like that's not obviously a lot of that. It's not a lot of the time. That's not true. But as a general rule. People that work in television, television news, um, you should be very suspect of them. I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, and some of the uh, White House r- reporter corps uh, clearly really like those opportunities to joust with members of the administration, right? To uh, get their little viral moment where they uh, are are pushing questions that I think in many cases are just driven by the agenda of getting attention for themselves and as a secondary matter for their for their news network. And so things got a little a little a little testy today with CNN's Jim Acosta. This is audio only from the briefing and uh, CNN's chief White House correspondent or in C- in CNN speak the this chief uh, senior chief top senior White House person, right? They love they love all these different titles. Uh, here's what Jim Acosta had to say in the audio only version of the Sean Spicer White House briefing. There's no camera on Jim. Well, maybe Jen. we should turn the cameras on, Jen. Sean. Why don't we Jen. turn the cameras on? Jen. Why don't we turn the cameras on? I'm sorry that you have to do. Jen, go ahead. why not turn the cameras on, Sean? Jen. They're Jen. in the room. The Who lights are on. Not. This is look. This is about ex- professional exposure. They're saying these journalists say it's all about the traditions of, of transparency and democracy and America, but it's really about they want to be on TV. Journalists want to be on TV. Everyone can have a blog these days, right? You, you want to be on TV, get people to see your face, make you kind of famous or famous-ish. So they're all upset about that. Meanwhile, CNN's got some other problems though. Much more important than the on or off air briefing situation that's going on here. Uh, CNN has had three journalists leave after a retracted article. This just uh, this just today. I don't think I mentioned this to you on Friday. So CNN writes a piece about a Russia investment fund, and it's uh, not on. They don't air it, but they put it on their website, which does traffic in the tens of millions. Very well trafficked website. And it names Trump advisor Anthony Scaramucci, whom I've met a few times, a very, uh, very charming fellow. Uh, it mentions it, it, it. Well, I shouldn't just say mentions it. It specifically uh, talks about Scaramucci and ties him to this. And the whole thing is was at first they said it didn't meet their editorial standards and then they completely retracted it. And now uh, they have three journalists out. Uh, they resigned officially, but. I think. We can read between the lines here and see that those resignations almost certainly were the you can resign or we can have security escort you out variety, right? You can resign or you can be fired. Um, this it will be treated, of, of course, the way that CNN plays this and, and any other media organization in their hashtag resistance category would treat this is to say, see, we clean our own. We clean up our own house. We have standards. We have integrity and we. Um, won't allow, in this case, a single anonymous-sourced hit piece against a named individual that, I don't know, is it legally actionable? 
Scaramucci, I saw him tweet about this, and he just said they they retracted it. I'm moving on. You know, I appreciate them doing the right thing, which seems like a very classy move from uh, from Scar from Anthony Scaramucci. Um, but theoretically, I could could it be legally actionable for defamation? I I don't know. Um, but it seems to me that there's there's a bit of a panic, and there's been some reporting already on this that there are problems within CNN, and that they recognize that this article was just way out of bounds. Um, to use a single unsourced uh, source, or sorry, sorry, a, a single anonymous, a single unsourced source, excuse me, <laughs> a, a non-sourced source. No, to use a single anonymous source uh, for a piece like that is just, that's, now you're just running stories on what's effectively hearsay, right? Now, now you've got nothing. And uh, they've got three people that it seems have lost their jobs because of this. Um, but I, as I was saying, CNN will position this as, see, we, we have integrity. You can trust us. Democracy dies in darkness. That's the Washington Post thing. But I know all the different journalists now are more or less making that same claim for themselves. Uh, but here's the truth of this. This is a symptom of the much larger anti-Trump disease. Right? That, why do you think the, these, are, these are not people who are, who are new? Uh, these are not uh, first first timers. Uh, these are not you know recent college grads that are uh, are getting the boot as a result of this. Um, this is uh, th- these are people who are being fired uh, or who are resigning technically, I should say, right? Uh, because they got caught up in anti-Trump mania, right? They saw an opportunity to hit Trump and they took it or one of Trump's people, someone very close to the White House, and they took it. And this time it was just indefensible. But it's important, you see, for different journalistic outfits to at least perpetuate some mythology about their credibility, some to, to maintain some fig leaf about how we're nonpartisan, we're, you know, we're straight down the middle, we're just, just the facts and all that. Because the people who are part of the Trump resistance and the people who are sitting at home who want to just see a barrage of anti-Republican and anti-Trump bile on TV all the time, uh, they they don't want to they don't want to think they're watching partisan claptrap. They don't want to believe or, or they don't want to be told that this is ideologically motivated. They would much rather they are much more comfortable thinking that, no, this is just, you know, democracy dies in darkness. This is just big J journalism. And there is a level at which it's too obvious, even for the average CNN viewer, that there is an agenda at work at the network, and there's a level at which it's too obvious at, at any place. And so they have to uh, they have to engage in, in an activity like this to try and maintain a shred of credibility going forward about uh, about all of this. So... As I was saying to you, this is, uh, this is symptomatic of the larger disease. This is anti-Trumpism finally going too far even for CNN. But uh, they've been pushing toward this for a long time where they were going to have people who finally just, you know, they were overtaken by the desire to be the first to get in a good, a good hit piece on the administration and would sacrifice credibility and, and basic standards of forget about basic standards of journalism, just basic accuracy right well i mean this is this is crazy stuff that they would go with this um so i just i think it's it's noteworthy that for those of us who've been saying that the and it's a i know there's a lot of conservatives saying this but those of us who have been making the case to you for quite a while now 
that the media has become unhinged in their anti-Trump uh, hatred. Yes, up to and including the point where, where people are going to lose their jobs because they just go too far. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, what was it, there was that uh, woman who, I think she worked for one of the network affiliates down in Florida after the Trayvon Martin case, and there was a producer who doctored the audio of George Zimmerman making a call before the encounter, the fatal encounter with the Trayvon Martin. I mean, you know, I guess for the purposes of, I don't know, I mean, to, to tell a stronger narrative or to, you know, for, for the social justice ideology, she changed the the raw audio and, and I mean, was doctoring a news story, right? I mean, and she lost her job because of it. So, I mean, this happens, right? Journalists, they they operate within this realm of of the pretense of objectivity. And we know it's not really objective, but sometimes they they really go too far and they have to kind of uh, they have to sacrifice one of their own to the the God of Big J journalism just to keep the whole charade going. I've heard people say charade. Sh- 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 it's charade, right? Do some people say charade or am I crazy? I think it's just charade. All right. Neither here nor there. Uh, more Russia stuff, though, this time on the response from the administration about this. Some very interesting stuff there. The, the Russia thing it really is collapsing. I mean, it, we are in it's in free fall right now. I've seen the uh, well, the, the FBI, uh, according to The Washington Post here, FBI has been uh, sitting down with with Carter Page. I'll tell you a bit about that and also what big Democrats are saying about this and much more in uh, just a few teams. Stay with me. John in Mississippi on the line, WBUV Mississippi. What's up, John? Hey, Buck. Good to talk to you again. You too, sir. Uh, I want to alert you, I want to alert your listeners to something I think would be very significant. A window has been opened on this origin of the Russia-Trump collusion hysteria because the author of that dossier, whose name is Christopher Steele, has been sued for defamation. He claimed that a man that uh, runs a technology company was one of the hackers. And this guy, whose name is Gubarev, G-U-B-E-R-E-V, is suing in Florida and in somewhere in England. She's got two defamation lawsuits against Christopher Steele and his company, who was hired by a opposition research outfit named uh, Fusion GPS to dig up dirt on Trump. Well, he's being this. This lawsuit will will give us information on the origin of this dossier, because he's having to defend himself. He's having to show how this dossier came to be and who hired him and what the deal was. Hmm. Yeah, I think the uh, I think they've tried to sue for uh, any FBI. Yeah, here we go. This is for the Daily Caller. Um, this was back in May. Uh, oh, no, it wasn't. They're just reporting on this. Judicial Watch, the government's watchdog group, is suing the FBI for records about its contacts with Christopher Steele, the former British spy who compiled the uncorroborated dossier alleging that Trump advisors colluded with the Russian government during the presidential campaign. Uh, the suit seeks all records of communication between FBI officials and Steele, who runs the London, uh, London-based consulting firm. Uh, I, I have to say, you know, that, that, the, that the FBI... Uh, well, they're going to try to avoid, I'm sure, 
giving any disclosure on this whatsoever. Um, but that this was ever like that we were told that this was briefed to the president. Right. And then that the existence of this dossier was briefed to the president. Uh, that to me is. Uh, how did it get to this point? I mean, we, I remember reading the dossier after BuzzFeed print BuzzFeed decided to print the whole thing. And it's just obvious nonsense. But yes, it is. yeah. But so what do you I mean, John, you seem to think that something I mean, maybe this guy I haven't heard of this person. He said suing for defamation. But do you see this going? Yes. You, what's the, what's the big so what of that? He has to explain who hired him and uh, the fact that they were to keep it private. It was not to be shared with the public. And Steele says he was to give it personally or to make sure it got to into the hands of Senator John McCain. And um, um, it was published, among other places, by BuzzFeed. But uh, Steele is defending himself, saying, I didn't publish it to the public. Uh, My client betrayed me and made this public. It was not to be publicized. So it gives you a lot of information about Steele and who hired him and what his motives were. And, of course, his dossier really is nonsensical and unbelievable. You know, he even says such things as Trump paid for the hacking of the DNC computer, and the operation was run out of Putin's office. It's pretty ridiculous. John, thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, the... uh... You know, the, it's interesting, wasn't it, that the Washington Post ran this whole story and and people, it seemed to me, are just now catching on with uh, catching on to why is the Post some of the stuff that the Post it was printing, uh, if true, would fall under the why are you why are you publicizing this? Um, this is unwise and uh, not in the best interests of the country. Uh, you know, referring to what these former officials were saying was going on at the time. Some of it was not does not fall into the category of, you know, public uh, should know this stuff again, assuming it's true, which, you know, I don't know one way or the other. Um, but they assumed, I think, that they could run this big Russia story, which I, I had mentioned just the day before. I think it was Friday. The story drops Thursday. I said, you know, is it interesting? We haven't had a big Russia story this week. Friday, the story drops and. Uh, they're hoping to come up with this whole new series of, or this whole new series of revelations about how uh, far-reaching the Russian attempts to influence the election were, and how intense this was, and how the administration was was struggling mightily to strike a balance between, uh, well, between not intervening too much in the election or not appearing to intervene in the election in some way and responding uh, to this threat. I think a lot of people read the uh, read the piece and and re- and looked at what was going on around it and just said to themselves, you know, uh, if if this was such a big deal and Obama decided to downplay what a big deal it was because Hillary was going to win, well then that's on the Democrats. And that's really actually on Obama uh, him himself in that he would play politics with something that was clearly now being said to be such a major issue and even an issue of, of national security concern. I mean, you get, uh, oh, here you go. You got, you got Al Franken, Al Franken, Senator, Democrat. He's talking about this. Uh, let's hear it. I think they, they did think Hillary would win, and I think they didn't want to look like they were putting a thumb on the scale, and right. that's why they didn't. Uh, do more. I wish they had, obviously. So he didn't play it right. Look where we are now. Yeah. 
they didn't they didn't play it right. Oh, you got Adam Schiff too, Democrat from California. He's saying something else along the same lines. The American people needed to know, and I didn't think it was enough to tell them after the election. Uh, but rather, given the seriousness of this, I think the administration needed to call out Russia earlier, and needed to act to deter and punish Russia earlier, uh, and I think that was a very serious mistake. You see, now they're running into a problem because they've got the special counsel, they've got multiple investigations, they've created this, this media frenzy around Russia collusion, and of course that all has to be based on well, this is really this was a really important this was a really important thing. Our election, our electoral process was under assault by the Russians. They want you to believe that. But for the story to make sense, the Obama administration had to know about this, right? Because this is all it's all information that was gathered while Obama was in office. Well, if Obama knew that this whole thing was happening and didn't tell the American people about it and didn't take dramatic measures until after the election, and even then they weren't that dramatic, to do anything about it, you're left with only two possible conclusions. One, uh, Obama made political decisions about how to handle this because he thought Hillary was going to win and it would help the Democrats, so he put the party fortunes of the Democratic Party ahead of everything else in the the country at the time. Or two— it wasn't that big. It wasn't thought of as that big a deal at the time. But now that Hillary lost, they're trying to make it seem like a big deal. You can choose one of those. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. So Bernie Sanders, um, yes, it's Bernie's night and the mood is right for socialism. Bernie Sanders is, uh, beloved by progressives, uh, on the left. Uh, well, all progressives are on the left, but you know what I mean? Bernie Sanders is very, uh, popular with the, uh, younger millennial Democrat types. And uh, he's a guy who's been championing, championing uh, for some time. It's kind of a hard word to say on radio, championing. Um, for some time, uh, more investigations into the banks and, uh, you know, more um, scrutiny of uh, financial transactions that the banks are looking into. And y- you may have seen this over the weekend, but it turns out that... Trump, uh, as uh, as is pointed out here on Fox News, Trump is not under direct FBI investigation, but Bernie Sanders is. Bernie Sanders and his wife are currently uh, lawyering up. Uh, they are lawyering up because of what his his wife's tenure running uh, one of these. Very well. I was going to say very. Oh yeah, Jane Sanders. There you go. Uh, these very left-wing schools. I forget which one it is now. Hold on a second. Uh, has oh Bur- Burlington College, which I'm sure has fantastic classes in a uh, number. I, I don't know anything. I'm actually I don't know anything about Burlington College. Not anything about it. Uh, I was thinking of Bennington, which is I, I knew I knew somebody who was a professor at Bennington, and and she was um, let's just say. Uh, a hippie 
that's that's putting it mildly. Uh, but but Burlington College is where San- Bernie Sanders' wife, Jane Sanders, was, I guess, president for a while. And she and Bernie have had to hire a uh, uh, hired attorneys because there is a an FBI investigation into a 2010 bank loan. And they're also looking at the possibility that Sanders, who was the... Uh, what is it? Sanders was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, I think, at the time. Or was he a senator? I don't know. I think he was the mayor of Burlington. Um, they they are looking to see if he used undue influence. So, And this is for a $10 million uh, loan so the college could purchase a property. And she sought approval from the Vermont Educational and Health Buildings Finance Agency. Whoa, Vibafa, Vermont Educational and Health Buildings Finance Agency, uh, which voted to issue tax-exempt bonds for the transaction. And those bonds were purchased. And Okay, so some, some situation here of uh, possible financial impropriety. Um, so, look, this is not... Uh, the hashtag bank fraud Bernie is, is getting some attention on, on Twitter. They didn't do any. This is not like a, a big national security implications or something. I mean, this is as as federal investigations go. I mean, this is going to be pretty uh, minor, I think, in the sense that if they get past this, no one's really going to care. But bank fraud is one of those. You know, this is this is what I really wanted to get into here. Um Bank fraud and, and financial frauds that occur at the individual level are, are, are can be punished very severely. Um, mortgage fraud, for example. I, mean, I remember talking to some detectives I knew at the uh, NYPD about this. Uh, it just came up in a discussion about a case. Uh, mortgage fraud is, I think, punishable by 10. It's federal crime, 10 years you can get for mortgage fraud, which you know seems pretty severe. Uh, but and, and there are any number of these financial crimes, and, and in some cases, really, you have to look hard to find harm to the bank. You know, I mean, the bank is still getting paid, but it's maybe taking a bigger risk than it meant to, or there's some of the, you know, the person is supposed to be living in the house isn't living in the house; somebody else is, and they're using their credit or something. I mean, these are not, uh, but these are not life and death situations, and the punishments for these can be very uh, drastic. I don't know what, at least. Uh, theoretically, Jane Sanders and Bernie Sanders could be facing here uh, in terms of the federal criminal charges, but uh, the FBI is looking into it. Uh, I also, so anyway, so the, the, it can be very severe the charges that you face for these these what what are seemingly not even call it what to call it white collar crime is make it sound even more intense than it is, but these otherwise kind of minor uh, infraction, um, uh, you know of saying that you're going to have more cash on hand or something than you do. And I just feel like when you look at this from the other perspective, you know, if you're if you're a big company, you can defraud investors and do all kinds of shady stuff. And if you pay a large enough fine, this is, you know, this is what I'm getting at. If you pay a large enough fine, no one goes to prison, right? So, you know, you can pay like a multi-billion dollar fine over the mortgage, uh, mortgage-backed security meltdown or any number of things. But if you're if you're a big guy and you do something financially wrong, usually you pay a financial penalty. But if you're an individual or you're a small entity, you tend to get crushed, right? The federal 
the federal behemoth comes along, the federal giant just stomps on you and you're and you're done. Uh, so I, I guess there's a part of me that has some some sympathy. I know you're like, oh, Buck with Bernie Sanders and, you know, he's, he hates the banks and he says we should be looking at the banks. And now they're looking at him for looking to or for doing bad things to the banks. And I, I get all those implications. I understand. Uh, but I, I'm also somebody who and this is uh, this falls under the not popular right now. Right. If you're, if you're trying to drive up your radio or TV ratings. You got to be either everything Trump does is awesome or everything Trump does is terrible. And that filters all the way down to whatever it is you're discussing. Right. So, you know, tribalism is unfortunately political tribalism is profitable. Uh, It is popular and it is profitable, meaning it makes people money who I think know better on a lot of issues. But they know that right now the movement still has a lot of and this is, of course, even more true on the left. Right. If, If you do something that hurts anything associated with Trump. That is going to help your ratings, going to help your bottom line. Uh, but I don't like the impulse. And I, I finally saw Alan Dershowitz saying this. I think it was last week. I don't like the impulse to try and throw our political enemies in prison. Um, I, and the left has been doing this for a long time in, much more, in a much more widespread and systematic fashion than anything you see on the right. But uh, the only, I mean, the exception, as I know, in my own thinking, comes with lock her up with Hillary, because I, I do think that what she did was really egregious. And, you know, I think that at some level, politicians do have to be held accountable for their crimes. But I, I don't like the cheering on of, well, let's just look at let's look at somebody. Let's try to find something somewhere that uh, they may have done that violated the law because we don't like where they stand on the issues. I think that sets a very destructive precedent uh, for um, our our politics in this country, but it, it look it's old. I mean, people are people are so funny about the uh, the history of this country when it comes to uh, our freedoms and liberty. I mean, never mind, of course, that there were people in this country who were not even, uh, as a matter of law, treated as people, and we had to fight a civil war over that. And I mean, there are obviously there are very difficult periods in our history of uh, that that we have had to overcome and get through, uh, where where liberty where liberty was. Uh, non-existent for some for some Americans, uh, for some people in this country. Uh, but when it comes to free speech, even, and when it comes to political discourse I, and, and the usage of the law as a weapon, this is not new. In fact, you go back to the Alien and Sedition Act, uh, you had some of our, our most revered founding fathers, John Adams and Jefferson and yeah, when, when when they didn't like stuff, they were ready to go and lock people up for advocating policies that they didn't like. Absolutely. Absolutely. The the impulse to imprison those and therefore take them out of the discussion and, and ruin them and destroy their reputations, uh, the impulse to do that and use the government as a, a mechanism for that is not new. Uh, and it's something we have to constantly be on guard against. We have to fight against that. Look, did did Bernie uh, viol- did Bernie or his wife violate the law here? I I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if they did, of course, I'm not saying they shouldn't be held accountable. They should, but I think that there is a an unfair imbalance between what happens at the individual level for financial crimes, for fraud, for any number of things, versus what you see to the powerful and the connected, particularly from very large institutions, uh, which is an injustice. And I also I'm just trying to put the brakes a little bit on the, oh, look, Bernie Sanders is under investigation for criminal activity. Let's hope that he goes to prison for this or something because he's Bernie Sanders. You know, 
prison is not not a good thing for anybody. Prison is rough. Uh, so uh, Bernie Sanders, I think Bernie Sanders in the discussion is a good thing because I think he's much more honest about what Democrats want than people like Hillary Clinton. I think Bernie Sanders' presence in the national debate is important because he's actually saying what Democrats think but generally won't say because the country's not with them yet on it. But increasingly, the at least young people in this country, until they pay enough taxes and learn enough about life, are with Sanders. Uh, so that's that I, I want his arguments to be out there. I want us to be able to tackle them and, and expose them. Um, but we will see if this actually comes to anything. This is Sanders. Sanders is calling the allegations nonsense. Um, I, I, I this doesn't strike me as this doesn't strike me as as it's something that's going to go anywhere. Uh, and I, I like I said, I do not like. The let's let's throw people in prison that disagree with us politically. Let's uh, let's bring charges. Let's even just bring investigations against our political enemies. Democrats do that far too much. Look, they're doing it against Trump. Right. That's that's the whole game plan. Um, And we see this now in a variety of contexts. I don't think that we should adopt the unprincipled tactics of the left just because we're dealing with an unprincipled opposition. I, I disagree with that. Of course, with the media that's always trying to find a way to talk about how the Trump administration is uh, Islamophobic, is xenophobic, is just phobic, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Phobos, Greek for fear. Um, But, yeah, this is uh, another instance of that. First of all, you have have the White House uh, this time around not— celebrating uh, Eid al-Fitr, which is at the end of Ramadan. It's the feast that commemorates or celebrates the uh, the end of Ramadan, the Muslim holy month. And uh, no surprise here, you have uh, a number of publications that are writing about how, I have to love this, the, the Independent in the UK, Donald Trump just ended the tradition of hosting Muslim iftar dinner at the White House that started in 1805. So if you were to read that headline, which is which is on the, you know, pops up on the web right now, you would think, oh, my gosh, Trump has ended this 212 year tradition of the the critical White House iftar dinner. OK, um, here's the reality, which media is not really catching on to. And then I'll get into some of the my philosophical and political objections to the way they're talking about this. First of all, the uh, Iftar dinner, as they're calling it, in 1805, had to do with a Tunisian envoy showing up. Why was a Tunisian, and, and during Ramadan, and so they were accommodating his dining schedule. It wasn't really an Iftar dinner. They're just saying, okay, this guy only eats at this time, so it's after sunset. That's when he's doing it. We're going to show up and talk to this Tunisian envoy. Why are we meeting with the Tunisian envoy? Oh, that's right, because uh, the Muslim states, the Barbary states of North Africa— were engaged in what we now know of as the Barbary War. They were enslaving Americans, grabbing them off their ships, taking the women, putting them in uh, harems as sex slaves, and using the men as labor uh, on ships and in mines until they died. Uh, slave labor. That's right, Americans uh, enslaved by Muslim states. And we fought a war with them. It was, in fact, our first uh 
overseas war, our first foreign conflict, not on U.S. shores, to the shores of Tripoli, as you know from the Marine Anthem. Oh, that's right. Yeah, th- that's why we're having this meeting. So if we're going to talk about the first iftar dinner, maybe we should remind ourselves of the first war we had to fight to stop Muslim states from enslaving Christians because, as they told, by the way, our uh, envoys in England when they met with them there, I believe it was either Jefferson or Adams, I forget who, um, this is because of what the Koran tells us to do. So I just think it's fascinating that we're going to we're going to point to 1805 and say, see, this long tradition of like a White House that celebrates Islam. No, we were meeting with an envoy because we were having to fight them to get them to stop enslaving us, actually. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, But in the last 20 years or so, the White House, starting with Clinton, has had some iftar celebration. um, And that's. that's the way that it has been. So they overstate the the duration of the tradition. The first one in 1805. Eh, not really. Uh, it certainly didn't happen for 200, almost 200 years after that. There was no iftar dinner celebrated at the White House. Um, and that's why when the Washington Post writes, President Trump just ended a long tradition of celebrating Ramadan at the White House. Uh, and they, they refer back to 1805 and the Jefferson, the Thomas Jefferson invitation for the White House dinner. Uh few things on this. First of all, you'll notice how there's a endless hostility towards uh, Christian and, and Jewish traditions in government and in the White House from the left, um, but not to any Islam. Any Islamic celebration is just considered part of the multicultural imperative under which we all, the multicultural mandate under which we all live. So that's the different set of rules automatically for that. Uh, but then uh, I, I would just note that there are some there then there are some religions uh, that don't get celebrated by the White House. And w- what do we say to them? Right. What's the w- what's the justification? O- Obama, for those of you who may not know this, was the first president to ever celebrate Diwali, which is the Hindu festival of light in the White House. So Obama, which because there are, as I've talked to you before, there's a a roughly three to five million Muslims in this country, uh, call it three or four. And there are about the same number of Buddhists in the country. And there are uh, about a million Hindus, roughly, in the country, maybe half a million to a million Hindus. Um, But, for example, the Buddhist festival of celebration of Vasak which honors the birth, enlightenment, and passing of Buddha, only got a statement from the Obama White House last year. Just a statement on the website. Well, wh- why, why do we have to have... Why is the iftar dinner a thing that has to happen, but, the, but Vasak, I mean, that's, they could do more there. Right? So they're, they're, you'll notice that they pick and choose among religions which they're going to celebrate, and by the numbers, look, the, the American tradition and Christianity... Uh, are not something that I think anybody really needs or much of a... Ref- well, they might need a refresher course, but I, I don't think any serious person can argue that Christianity hasn't had a, a major influence and impact on America for its entirety, uh, for the entire duration of it being a country and even before then. Um, and yet you'll notice that there will be hostility against the president, against the White House for being too religious or people that question whether there should even be a prayer breakfast and this this sort of thing. Uh, but they they drop the iftar dinner 
from the they, they did make a statement. They said, you know, happy, happy iftar to everybody or something like that. I forget what the Trump White House said specifically. Um, but this is seized upon as as evidence of the Trump administration's hostility towards towards Muslims. And I, I just have to say that, you know, there are, there are a bunch of different ways to look at this. One is do so now do we have to have the White House celebrate all religions? Is that the way that this is? Where do, where does it stop? You know, when is it not enough? Do do we have to have all now? Now you get into our federal uh, federal calendar, right? Of federal holidays. Do, do we have to add what religions get to have their holidays celebrated now by the federal government? You know, th- this is a conversation that that gets much broader uh, very quickly. I think if you're going to complain about the White House not celebrating uh, Eid al Fitr and uh, the um, the feast um, uh, to end Ramadan. Um, I just wonder, you know, when other religions. And of course, eventually you'll see this turn into a movement by those who don't take any religion particularly seriously, but form like the church of the of the Pastafarian or whatever it is, that guy who wanted to have a photo taken by the DMV with a a metal thing on his on his head. I forget what the but, you know, he says, well, this is my religion, too. I mean, you know, when does it stop? Right. When do they get to make distinctions about what's real and what's not and who gets included and what doesn't get included? But ultimately, this is all just about saying, see, Trump doesn't like Muslims. That's what the media wants you to think. So there you go. We've got more. Stay with me. The minimum wage. It has been a topic of discussion stretching back for many decades and it's one of those uh, parts of uh, economics and markets that tends to unfortunately get lost in emotional impulse. What I mean by that is it doesn't matter usually what information, what data, what arguments you make about the minimum wage. It just sounds good. It feels good to people. Shouldn't there be a basic amount of money that you are paid for work, regardless of what that work is, regardless of how much value you are bringing to that business. Don't workers need, uh, you know, an honest day's wage for an honest day's work? You know, you, you just hear all of this. I mean, this isn't something that you have to uh, stretch very far to, to find. I mean, you'll, any politician will, oh yes, minimum wage workers, the lifeblood of America. We need to make sure that people are being compensated fairly. The problem with the notion of fair compensation, just like Uh, The notion of, with President Obama, fair taxation and paying your fair share is that it's meaningless. This is uh, sentimentalism posing as economics. This is what what makes you uh, sleep better at night if you're somebody that you're for it versus somebody who's against it. Now, I don't think I've yet talked to you much on the show about my sense of the minimum wage, and that is the more you read about the minimum wage— the more you see that the data doesn't support that, that the minimum wage does what it's supposed to do. Here's what, and I'm going to tie this all into a recent study of a major minimum wage increase in Seattle, everybody. Here's what usually you're told. Uh, workers aren't paid enough because of, and this really is a Marxist class struggle argument, but the fat cat owners and, and business managers are don't want their their profits to be cut into and they have all this extra cash that they're sitting on and they don't want to share it with workers. They're mean, they're nasty, they don't care about people and therefore uh, they 
won't pay them fairly, right? Again, we're back at that word fair, um, but they will pay them exploitation level wages, right? That's the idea. So, so you have to have the government step in here and tell people um, that, that they have to pay, be paid a certain amount. Uh, that's the, the basic argument, right? And when you look at the data, you see that there are all of these different ways that that argument, though, begins to fall apart, and that also it has problems, not just philosophically, but in the implementation of minimum wage as an economic, uh, really a, an intrusion into the market by the government, right? That's what it is. So you have this uh, $15 minimum wage in Seattle, in Washington, a very left-wing city, a place where, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the voting is uh, not just substantially pro-Hillary and before that pro-Obama, but it's a, it's a progressive stronghold. Here's what they found out. So, so Seattle raised the city's minimum wage to $15 an hour. And keep in mind that Bernie Sanders who was really the most exciting. I know he's got some problems right now with the whole investigation into bank fraud. I don't do anything. It's ridiculous. They're making me hire lawyers. They're going after my wife. It's crazy. Um, but that's an aside. Coming after the burn. Why they got to come after the burn? Uh, but Sanders uh, was a big proponent of raising minimum wage. And it's so popular because it sounds good. It sounds right that... Even a lot of Republicans are in favor of raising the minimum wage, and very few Republicans will make the case against a minimum wage. But some cities are trying it now with a substantially higher minimum wage, and in Seattle, they went to $15 an hour, and they're doing this primarily—remember, This is remember, this is the argument—that it will help low-income workers. But the city on its own, the city of Seattle, hired a few economists to look at this issue and— Here's what they have found out. And oh my, those of us who are the Scrooge McDucks of the minimum wage debate, we were right. We were right. Big surprise. Here's what they found. Some employers have not been able to afford the increased minimums. They've cut their payrolls, putting off new hiring, reducing hours, or let their workers go, according to the study. The cost to low-wage workers in Seattle outweighed the benefits by a ratio of 3 to 1. Think about that, my friends. On the whole, the study estimates the average low-wage worker in the city lost $125 a month because of the change in the minimum wage. I mean, this is the equivalent of an economic bombshell. This is a free, you know, free markets. The price is what the price is. Tsunami. I mean, you cannot avoid this obvious truth, this just swell of facts that's that are now uh, flooding the zone here. Because yeah, that's right. You can tell a business that it has to pay people more. But then the business will just find ways to survive or not based on that new mandate. What does that mean in the context of minimum wage? Well, what it means is that now you have people who will uh, not fire employees necessarily, but they'll cut back their hours. Well, if you were making X amount of dollars working 10 hours a day, um, and now you're making lesser dollars, or sorry, now you're making more dollars but working 
seven or eight hours a day, guess what? Maybe you have less take-home pay. So what's, what's the point? They cut back hours. They put them on part-time or less-time schedules to make up for this. And it's because, especially in businesses, primarily the food service industry and others, where you have the minimum wage kicking in, the margins are, in fact, razor thin. You don't have business owners who are these big fat cats who are running a franchise that's a McDonald's or running a franchise that's a, uh, you know, a Wendy's or whatever the case may be. Uh, and paying their workers more does affect their bottom line. And they either have to pass on those costs to consumers, which, by the way, usually people just say, well, that's fine. The consumer won't notice. Well, guess what? The consumer that does notice the increase in, say, the, the cost of uh, a Happy Meal tends to be a low-wage worker, somebody at the lower end of the economic spectrum to begin with. So, sure, a lot of people won't care about the cost passed on to workers when you increase the wages of workers in the actual establishment, but you can see that now you're just making sure that people uh, who have less money to spend are spending more so that people are making more who don't have very much money uh, at the worker's end of the spectrum. So you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. I mean, it's just... It, it doesn't work the way they want it to work. But so they, they cut back hours. They're making less money as a result of this. Of course, there are some places where there will be firings. They'll usually see that's actually where the argument in the past has fallen, uh, has fallen by the wayside a little bit. People say, well, see, you can increase the minimum wage and workers aren't, don't necessarily lose their job. So that argument is irrelevant. That argument doesn't really matter anymore. Well, sure, maybe they're not fired, but guess what? Now they work fewer hours. And that has a negative impact on their take-home pay, which is what the whole purpose of this minimum wage exercise is in the first place. But there are even more uh, aspects of this that come into play. For example, they see a rise when they, when they put a minimum wage in place. They see a rise, and they want to point to this as a good thing, but it isn't necessarily, a rise in higher wage employees in that general sector. So if the minimum wage is $15 an hour, Maybe you, you see an increase in people at 20 or $25 an hour, um, but that's just the business then looking to replace uh, the lost productivity of lower paid employees with higher paid employees who will do more. You know, that's just, okay, we're going to automate maybe and have somebody who's in a more managerial role or doing the work of what a couple of lower paid people would have been doing with the help of automation. And as you see, that means that the people that are at the bottom end of the economic spectrum are, once again, the, losing out on this whole thing. So saying that there's a, in some cases, there's a, an increase in slightly higher paid than minimum wage jobs isn't good news for the people that the policy is in place to help in the first place. So, of course, you know where this is going to go, right? You have this study, Seattle, test case, $15 minimum wage, not working the way it's supposed to. Oh, and I didn't even get into, by the way, how uh, for a lot of people who are minimum wage employees, they are not the sole earner in the household. Uh, usually they're the second, or oftentimes, I shouldn't say usually, oftentimes they're the second earner in a household. And so they're not coming from uh, deeply economically disadvantaged backgrounds to begin with. And so it, it's just not an effect. Raising the minimum wage is not an effective means of helping the working poor. That's, that's the bottom line to all of this. But by the way, this is not going to surprise any of you, I'm sure. Do you think that this will change the approach? Do you think that this will change 
the way that uh, the left views minimum wage? Of course not. Now you see this, and it's already apparent in the Washington Post analysis of the issue. Now it turns into, well, it maybe it's different in different sectors of the economy, or what about much bigger businesses, or this is just another version of we don't like the results, so we're going to find a way to argue around them. This is, you know, communism failed once again. I'm not saying this is communism, but it's a, it's a version of the argument that, you know, yeah, communism has failed once again, but it wasn't done right. Okay, I mean, minimum wage fails once again, but it wasn't done right. Well, if Seattle can't do it right, and, you know, Seattle's a major metropolitan area, very progressive, booming tech industry there, uh, which obviously raises a lot of taxes and, and brings a lot of benefits to the city. If Seattle can't do it, what's the right way for it to be done? And now, of course, they also say it needs more study. There need to be more studies done. Here's This is just like what I talked to you about on healthcare and everything else. The price is the price. The cost is the cost. We can come up with all these different ways to hide it, to shift it, to move it around. But ultimately, labor is worth in an industry what it is worth. The market decides. And if we intrude upon that, we just either pass the cost or move around the downside for the worker. But it does not. we, we do not live in this fantasy land of, well, you know, why not just make it $30 an hour? Why not make it $100 an hour? Because... There are costs and unintended consequences. So the minimum wage doesn't work the way it's told. But you know what? Republicans and Democrats are still going to stay with it because it's politically popular. We'll be back in just a few teams. Stay with me. So I was in the city here, uh, New York City, that is, on uh, Sunday. Sorry, we refer to it as the city, which I know we shouldn't do. There are a lot of cities. Uh, this, is a, this is a New York-centric uh, way of speaking. Uh, but I was, I was in Manhattan. I was in New York City over the weekend, and there was a pride parade going on. And it just so happens that my apartment in the various uh, iterations of my own little personal freedom hut, my uh, couple hundred square feet of... Uh, overpriced paradise here in New York City, uh, tends to be on the parade route for uh, the pride for the pride parade or nearby enough that I can hear all the music. And you're essentially uh, if you're within five blocks in either direction of what the parade route is in New York City, you tend to be uh, a part of the festivities just by walking outside your door or even in your even in your apartment, you may be hearing it. And look, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of music, people having fun, a lot of very interesting uh, costumes and uh, different modes of of dress, and in some cases, lack of lack of dress out on the streets during during Pride Parade. Uh, there's a lot of people walking around without without a whole lot of clothing on. Uh, there were uh, there were some ladies who were, I believe, uh, you'd you'd call it topless, walking around. So that's a thing that happens here in New York during Pride Parade. So uh, I happened to be uh, walking around running some errands and, and doing some things on Sunday and, and saw um, bits bits of the parade. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, and, and granted, I did not see any anti-Trump paraphernalia or anything anywhere. I didn't, maybe it was there, but I didn't see it. Um, and I know that there had been discussions as to whether uh, Pride Parade, because it's Gay Pride Month, and whether Pride Parade would specifically be used as an opportunity to be anti-Trump or to oppose Trump, to be part of the resistance. And, and it's it's remarkable, really, because Trump is the first 
he's the first U.S. president to enter office uh, supportive of gay rights and and supportive of gay marriage. Uh, it is President Obama is given a complete pass for, at a minimum, the political opportunism as a, a Democrat and a leftist for being in favor of traditional marriage when that was politically more convenient for him and then changing over the course of his presidency, right? Evolving on the issue, as, as it was said at the time. But Donald Trump is the first president to be in office who uh, was holding up at rallies, not talked about much in the press ever, of course, uh, would hold up gay, uh, gay pride flags at his rallies, uh, would speak very favorably and, and in supportive fashion uh, to and about the gay community. And I remember walking around, I was thinking to myself, you know, he gets just, he gets no credit for this at all. Uh, and whether you uh, agree with uh, gay marriage and the Obergefell decision or not, that we have a president of the United States who is somehow considered an enemy of, or at least uh, worthy of, of ridicule and, and constant criticism from the LBGT community seems strange considering that he's the president who's the single most uh, favorably disposed to gay rights and the LGBT community in U.S. history. Right. He is he is not somebody who has come into office saying I'm only in favor of traditional marriage. Mitt Romney, by the way, was in favor of civil unions. So, you know, this uh, Republicans have gotten a a tough uh, reputationally a tough deal on this because really they've been right alongside. You know, Democrats and Republicans were mostly right alongside each other on this issue until very recently. And then all of a sudden it just all turns and Republicans are the bad guys. Anyway, so I was walking around private, lots of loud techno music. If you like techno music, you definitely want to go and, and uh, bust out your dance moves, uh, Pride Parade. A lot of people had a lot of fun. They had great weather. I'm very, I'm glad it all worked out. Um, but sure enough, a, a the anti-Trumpism of the LGBT community made some headlines, uh, despite the fact, as I said, that Trump is the most pro-LGBT com- uh, president in history. Um, you had Nikki Haley who is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, and she wrote on Twitter that she was at a New York City restaurant while the gay pride parade was happening. And she said, she wrote, we, including my son, were booed by patrons saying hateful things as we left lunch at Pride Parade. Our country is better than this. You know, our country is better than this. And this really bothers me. I'd like to use stronger language, but there's a family show. This really gets me annoyed. Um, Nikki Haley was with her kid, shouldn't be harassed, period, um, but that she would be harassed for being a part of the Trump administration, which is the most, as I said, uh, friendly to the uh, gay community of, of any administration based on the merits, based on his positions in history. It's just wrong. And it just shows that leftism is really a form of, of course, uh, virtue signaling. And uh, it's really a lifestyle in the sense of showing who you are, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of your beliefs on the left. As long as you are on the left, it's a it's a lifestyle choice to be a Democrat, to be a leftist, to be a progressive. And so you can't allow any free thinking there. And it's just a shame that Nikki Haley had to deal with this. Uh, because it's wrong uh, on many levels. It's wrong uh, to do that, and it's wrong because they shouldn't be booing Trump people for this. All right, team, thanks as always for joining the show. Great to have you with me here. Much uh, fun stuff planned for the rest of the week. Until then, as always, Shields High.